Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Well, my name is Tyler, and I'm going to be here tonight. Just we're, we're, we're looking tonight at the future, Isaiah chapters 24 to 27. I thought about talking about the future of um, Adelaide football, but then I thought, nah, I'll let you sort that out. Yeah. Um, why don't I pray, and then we'll jump into the Word. Lord, thank you that we can be here tonight and gather around your Word. Thank you that, Lord, that it's not my words by themselves that have power, but, but your Word is able uh, to make us wise for salvation. Lord, for a, for a salvation that you have won for us, that, Lord, starts here and will be completed on the day that we see you face to face. Lord, thank you for that salvation. And I pray that as you open our eyes to the future that you have won for us, Lord, that we can, our hearts would be moved and motivated and gladdened um, by these things that you've revealed for us. So we, we ask you to do this through the power of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're, if you're just coming along here for the first time, we've been going for about I don't know, six weeks, I think, um, through the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, and we're up to week seven. We're looking at four chapters tonight, chapters 24 to 27, following on from last week where we looked at 11 chapters, chapters 13 to 23. And there was a lot of, shall we say, um, uh, judgment um, in the negative sense in those chapters, judgment on the nations. Judgment on the nations around Israel, around God's people in Jerusalem, and on God's people um, themselves. And so these chapters that we're going to look at follow on this sort of fairly hopeless and bleak picture that's just been painted of the judgment that's coming on all these nations because of sin. Now, where I finished up last week, um, when I preached um, on these chapters down in, in Glenelg, I landed in chapter 19 of Isaiah, and you don't have to turn there, but let me just tell you what we found there. We found an incredible note of hope for the nations, because in that chapter, right after God sort of reads out this judgment that's coming uh, on Egypt, he says, in the future, however... In the future, there is going to be this road that extends from Egypt out in the west to Assyria in the east with Jerusalem right in the middle. And this road is not going to be built for them to trade with each other. It's not going to be built so that their armies can come and conquer all the peoples in the middle. This road is going to be built so that people in Egypt and people in Assyria can come to Jerusalem and worship God. And God looks at those people in Egypt and those people in Assyria and he says, Egypt, my people. Assyria, my kids. Israel, my inheritance. See, that's what God's doing. This, this note of judgment on the nations is never the end of the story. It's never the final word. There's always, God is always working behind the scenes and, and right there in front of us to save people, to save a, a remnant of survivors from all of these nations and gather them together in Jerusalem to worship. And that's where we're going tonight. We're going to expand this. 
You know, originally Israel, that you know, their capital there in Jerusalem, they all had this promise that was given to their forefather Abraham. And the promise that Abraham had was this. He said, God said to Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your kids. You're going to have kids and they're going to have kids and they're going to spread out and multiply and they're going to be in this land and I'm going to bless you. And then all the nations around you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you because of you. Now, if we look then at Israel's subsequent history all the way up to Isaiah's day, Israel was not shall we say, a blessing to the nations. In fact, Israel was often influenced by the nations and by the corrupt, sinful practices of the nations around them more than they were a blessing to the nations. It just, they just didn't do what they were supposed to do. And so what is it about Jerusalem being there in the center of all the nations that's so important? Isaiah seems to think, yep, there's something about Israel, Jerusalem right in the middle, that has something to do with all the nations around coming and worshiping God. And 700 years after Isaiah gave this prophecy, God did something in Jerusalem that no one could have predicted or no one really expected. You see, there in Jerusalem, right meters away from the temple, meters away from David's throne, God sent his own son who was lifted up in front of them. And he said, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all the nations to myself. Jesus himself, when he was speaking with Nicodemus, who knew the Old Testament really well, he said in John chapter 3, verses 14, 15, he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Son of Man, he's referring to himself, must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. That's where Jerusalem fits in the story because everybody from every nation that has since that day looked to Jerusalem, looked to the cross, which stood there and worshipped. Those are the people who are saved, just like you and me. We still look to the cross, which was raised up there in Jerusalem, for our salvation. We are saved because of what happened there from the wrath of God that leads to death. So jumping into Isaiah chapter 24 to 27 today, you've got to understand this context. That's what God is doing there in Jerusalem. And it has an impact then, not just on the, the people there, but on all nations. The chapters that we have today are preserved for you for a reason. They're they're, they're given to us here in 2018 for a reason, to give us peace in our hearts about the future, to give us steel in our spine, as it it were, when it comes to the future. You've you've got to understand these four chapters as the climax of all of the judgment oracles that happened in chapters 13 to 23. One of the commentators says that 13 to 23 is like 11 verses of, of condemnation, of the nations, and then we come to 24 to 27, and it's like the hallelujah chorus. Finally, God says, this is what all this judgment was for. Now that sin and evil is done away with, now comes salvation. Now comes hope. Sin and evil, you see, are horrific. Its victims are countless. We saw this last week. God is right and good and loving to destroy it, and that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to put an end to sin, and he's going to do it in two ways. In one sense, he is going to send his redeemed people into 
the nations, into all the world, to fill the earth with the good news of salvation in Jesus, that God is not, through Jesus, holding your sins against you. Second way he's going to do it is when Jesus returns in the future. When the King Jesus returns to the earth in the future, he is going to finally and decisively put an end to all sin, all evil, injustice. Everything that is wrong and unjust in the world is going to be done away with. And the result of that battle that will take place is that the current heavens and the earth will be destroyed and a totally new, perfect, beautiful creation, the new heavens and the new earth will come in its place. That's where these chapters fit in the wider scope of history. So I don't know what you think your future is going to be like. I don't know what you think it's going to be like. And I want to remind you, though, that based on the storyline of the Bible, that for every single person, yourself included, your future will look one of two ways. One of two ways. Future number one, if you don't know Jesus or choose not to believe in him, not to obey him, then you are still under his wrath. You're still under his condemnation, and it will last forever. But the good news is that that future doesn't have to be your future. The good news is that he is so ready to give you future number two that will also last forever. You have to just believe then that Jesus was raised for you, that he was raised to new life for you, and your future is completely redefined. What was bleak and dark condemnation in your future is now life, eternal life, love, joy, peace, and the worship of God that will live on and on and on to the glory of God. Isaiah 24 to 27 is all about these two possible futures. He unveils them for us, his people. And to paint the picture of these two futures, he uses an analogy or a metaphor of two cities. He said there's two cities. There is over here the city of chaos, he calls it. It's the city of chaos. It's the city that all of us are born into. We all live there in the city of chaos. Chapter 25 and 27, this city is fortified. It's lofty. But in the future, it will be destroyed. He he describes it, he sees it as lying in ruins. He sees the lofty city that's been brought low, that's been humbled and put in its place. The other city over here he calls the strong city in chapter 26, verse 1. And why is it strong? Because it's been built by God himself. And the glory of God is at the center. So those are the two cities representing the two futures. And now I have two questions for you. Question number one, which city do you want to live in? This is the city we all see. It's the world we live in. It's the world we know. Strong, beautiful, secure, Livable? I mean, think Adelaide's the fifth most livable city on earth. It's not as good as Melbourne, but it's the fifth most livable city on earth. Um, 
And we, and we, we think, what makes it so livable? Oh, we have great food, and we have great beaches, and we have great parks, and there's job opportunities here, and you can retire here, and you can live a comfortable, peaceful life. And then you die, and it all comes to nothing. So that's, um, again, future number one in the city of chaos. Which city do you want to live in? The city over here, I said, is, is largely invisible. It's coming. In the future, we enter it and we go there by faith. Second question for us is, if I'm physically living in the city over here, in the city of God, I'm in the world, how do I live then for this city over here? How do I live for this city over here if I'm physically located in this city over here? Those are two questions. So let's, look, let's jump into chapter 24, and we're going to look first at the city of chaos. We'll look about what Isaiah says about this city over here. Chapter 24, verse 1. Let's listen in. Look, the Lord is stripping the earth bare and making it desolate. He will twist its surface, scatter its inhabitants, people and priest alike, servant and master, female servant and mistress, buyer and seller, lender and borrower, creditor and debtor. The earth will be stripped completely bare and will be totally plundered. For the Lord has spoken this message. The earth mourns and withers. The world wastes away and withers. The exalted people of the earth waste away. Now, he's talking about, he says the earth. He says all these things are going to happen in the earth. But really, what he's describing is the earth as if it were a single city. The earth as if it were a single unit. And in this city that fills the whole earth, you have every kind of person filling every kind of vocation. You have people of high position. You have people of low position. You have people that have a lot of money. You have people that owe a lot of money. You have people that have power. You have people that are powerless. And yet, their future is the same. They are, because they live in this city here, their future is completely connected. And the future is God's judgment coming on the city. Verse 5, the earth is polluted by its inhabitants, for they have transgressed teachings, overstepped decrees, and broken the permanent covenant. Therefore, a curse has consumed the earth, and its inhabitants have become guilty. The earth's inhabitants have been burned, and only a few survive. So, the earthly city, the city of chaos, is polluted. And he's not talking about physical pollution, like rubbish and landfills and that sort of thing. He's talking about spiritual pollution. He's talking about soul pollution. Souls and societies and structures that, because they disobeyed God, have become corrupt. Everyone, it says, has gone against God's instructions. What instructions is he talking about? Is he talking about the Ten Commandments here? Maybe. What did the people in this city do wrong? There's a clue in verse 5 where Isaiah says that the people of the earth have broken the permanent covenant. What's that? A covenant is an agreement. It's a little bit like a contract. It's an agreement with two parties, and each party has a particular responsibility, an obligation to fulfill, such that 
as long as both parties are fulfilling their part of the agreement, then the covenant stands. If one party ceases to fulfill their obligations, then the covenant is broken. And the covenant he calls here, he says here, is an everlasting or a forever permanent covenant. Most scholars would suggest that he is referring then to the covenant that came to Noah, that was between Noah and all of his descendants and God. And to understand the history of this covenant, you've got to go back to Genesis chapter 8 and 9. If you don't know the history, I'll, I'll try and give it to you quickly. Here it is. Um, Noah, if you, you know, maybe if you learned the story when you were a kid, was um, living on the earth a long time ago, and God came to him and said, the earth is wicked and violent. And because of that, I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. And so he tells Noah, he says, get your family and get them in the ark and get a bunch of animals in the ark and only those living things in the ark will survive. Everything else will be destroyed. And so Noah obeys God. He does what God says. God sends the flood. The flood comes and wipes out everything except what's in the ark. And then the water eventually recedes and Noah comes out of the ark and he then communes or he meets with God. He builds an altar and then offers a sacrifice. And then at that point, God comes and speaks to Noah. It says at the end of chapter 8, Genesis 8, it says, God said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I've done. That's God's side of the agreement. He says, even though he knows, even though God knows that all of our hearts are inclined to sin, we're prone to wonder, he knows this, but still I won't destroy the whole earth the way that I did with the flood. Um, And then he gives Noah some stipulations. Noah, he says, I want you to take up the mantle of Adam and Eve, who I told to be fruitful and multiply, to have babies and spread out all over the earth, to rule the earth, subdue it, bring order and, you know, flourishing to creation. This is the the mandate that he gives to Noah. And then he adds to that, he says, now, any animal, you're able to kill animals for food now, whereas before they didn't. Now you can kill animals for food, but don't eat any animal with its lifeblood still in it. And if you kill innocent blood, as in another human being, out of anger, then I will require from you a punishment of retribution. See, he's saying, you, I do not want you to commit violence. Because when you do, that's why I destroyed the earth the first time. If you, and so now, when you commit violence, you are polluting the earth that I've made. That's, the, that's Noah's side. That's our side of the covenant. Now let's jump back to Isaiah, where Isaiah is talking about, he's looking out at the earth and saying, everything is polluted. Why? Because they have broken the everlasting permanent covenant. What's he mean? The earth is full of violence and killing and no respect for human life. That's the problem here. Now, you might be thinking, hang on, it's 2018. I know that in the world today is already full 
of murder and violence, greed, injustice, domestic violence, racism. I know that all these things happen on a daily basis everywhere. And God said, if we do these things, then he's going to bring this curse and he's going to judge the earth. Why hasn't he judged already? Come to think of it, there's a lot of sin and anger that goes on right here in my own heart. I mean, Jesus said that, you know, if I have an angry, you know, intentions or angry disposition towards my brother, it's like I've already murdered him in my heart. Why doesn't, hasn't God judged me for that? Is he just not see, did, you know, was, he just didn't see it? What about when I cut that corner at work or when I did that thing when I thought nobody was looking? Maybe God wasn't looking. Maybe that's why I haven't experienced this judgment. But you see, we live in a world of shadows. What do I mean by that? See, all around us there are shadows of the judgment, of the final judgment that's still to come. We don't always recognize these things as judgment. But the reason they're shadows and not the real thing is that God is gracious to you. God is gracious to the world. He's not bringing on this final judgment straight away, but it says that he is patient with us. He is kind to us to lead us to repentance. He's patient with us because he doesn't want anyone to die. He doesn't want anyone to receive finally that judgment and wrath on them. So when you come to these passages that speak of God's condemnation here. Don't just skip over them thinking, well, that was then. God's nice now. He doesn't really care about this stuff anymore. No, you got to let these things soak in and realize the only reason that you, there's only, well, two reasons why we don't experience this devastating judgment right now. One is God's common grace where he allows us to have time. He's patient with us, not wanting us to die and wanting us to repent, wanting us to come to Jesus, wanting us to believe the gospel and giving us that time. The other reason is that we, in fact, are repentant followers of Jesus and the punishment that we deserve fell on him. There are only two reasons why we don't experience judgment, but for those who don't know Jesus, that judgment is still coming in the future. Now, let's look at the curse, the description of the curse that Isaiah gives in chapter 24, starting verse 7. Here's what he says. He says, the new wine mourns, the vine withers, all the carousers now groan. The joyful tambourines have ceased, the noise of the jubilant has stopped, the joyful lyre has ceased. They no longer sing and drink wine, beer is bitter to those who drink it. The city of chaos is shattered, every house is closed to entry, in the streets of they cry for wine. All joy grows dark. Earth's rejoicing goes into exile. Only desolation remains in the city. Its gate has collapsed in ruin. See, I said before, this final judgment, this complete judgment, it hasn't come yet, but the shadows of it are everywhere. The food that sustains you, the wine that makes you happy, the house that shelters you, the happiness that makes you want to keep on living, none of these things will last forever. None of them. You've probably experienced days or even seasons of your life where you recognize that implicitly. Where you recognize, like the writer of Ecclesiastes, that food and drink go into your body and right back out. 
that material things that are said to make us happy and satisfy us will eventually break and decay. Music and laughter, if they don't provide real beauty and real hope, then they are distractions. They don't save us. They don't make us right with God. Even here, again, in Adelaide, comfort and pleasure as far as the eye can see. But none of it will make you happy forever. None of it will last forever. That's because everything around you, even in this beautiful place, is under the curse of sin. And that's where we're heading. The end of this, whole, this section ends chapter 27, verse 10. We read these words. For the fortified, beautiful, livable city will, in the future, be desolate. Pastures deserted and abandoned like a wilderness, for they are not a people with understanding. Therefore, their maker will not have compassion on them, and their creator will not be gracious to them. For now, there's grace. But for those who keep on rejecting him, it won't last forever. The city of chaos is going to collapse in a moment. So let's talk now about the other city, the city of God. Isaiah talks about it, especially in chapter 26. He tells us that it's a strong city, that it's built by the saving hand of God himself. He tells us that the only people who live in this city are righteous. They are trusting in God all the time, nothing else. They wait for God. They want his name to be famous. And here's the amazing thing. The people who live in this city were not born there. They weren't born righteous. They are a repentant people who responded to God's discipline. Chapter 26, verse 16 says, Lord, they went to you in their distress. They poured out whispered prayers because your discipline fell on them. And even the people in this city who have suffered and died, either by experiencing God's discipline or they sacrificed themselves in some way, it says, though they died, they will live. Verse 19, your dead will live, their bodies will rise, awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for you will be covered with the morning dew and the earth will bring out the departed spirits. This is the first and one of the only verses, references in the entire Old Testament to resurrection. And yet Jesus told us later on, he said, if you knew the Old Testament, if you listened to the prophets, you would not be surprised by the fact that I'm talking to you now about resurrection, that that's your future. And here it is. Death will not be the final word for the people living in this city. Remember the end of the story for this city over here, it's beautiful now, but death and destruction is coming. Over here, they might be dead now. They might be suffering now. But life is coming. This morning, I, I, like this weekend, I honestly love the rain. I've been just hanging out for this weather, to be honest. Sorry if you haven't been. Um, I'm like, we, I just don't have time to water my garden. It, has been, it is bone dry. And now I'm like, it's going to be green. And I'm, I'm really excited about this. And that's what this verse is saying. This is this picture of your, Israel is a desert and there are seasons of the year in Israel where the only moisture that they have is the dew that shows up in the morning on the grass. It's the only thing that keeps that place green and alive. 
And God says, that's what's coming. God is coming to you to raise you and me from the dead. That's the promise we have. Back in chapter 5 of Isaiah, God describes his people as a vineyard. He says, my people are a vineyard that I planted. I built a wall around it. I cultivated it. But because they didn't want me, because they rebelled against me over here in this city, harvest time came and the only grapes that showed up were wild and useless. Chapter 27, verse 2, he describes another vineyard. And this vineyard is very different from this one. On that day, sing about a desirable vineyard. I am the Lord who watches over it to water it regularly. See that no one disturbs it. I watch over it night and day. I am not angry. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and bloom and fill the whole world with fruit. What changed? This is the future for the people in the city of God, the humble, the poor, the ordinary people of all nations gathered out of the rubble of this city, of, out of this useless vineyard, and transplanted into this desirable, beautiful, fruitful vineyard tended by God. I want to show you what else will happen in this new city's building. You've got to flip back to chapter 25 in the setting we're here in this, look, in this new city. Now this city, I didn't tell you this before, but this city is built on a mountain. It's built on the top of a mountain, Mount Zion, which is the same mountain that, where the city of Jerusalem sits today sits on top of Mount Zion. And this new city, the city of God, is also going to be built on Mount Zion. It is the new Jerusalem. If you go to Revelation chapter 21, it is the penultimate chapter in the Bible. You, you see, again, there, all the language, the same language of the new Jerusalem. It says it comes down out of heaven and sort of lands on the earth. And here is this city. Now, it's, it's a metaphor, right? So here, what's the city like? Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts, choice meat, fine vintage wine. I'm so there. On this mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. What is it? What is the, what is the sheet covering all nations? What's the thing that, you know, came because of the curse all the way back in Genesis 3? said, you eat this fruit, you will what? You will die. You will surely die. In verse 8, he will destroy death forever. The Lord will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. On that day it will be said, look, this is our God. We've waited for him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That's the song they'll be singing in this city as they're eating their steak and drinking their wine. Remember last week, we, I don't know if you guys looked at this, but in, in chapter 22, in the, in the oracle against Jerusalem, um, the people of Jerusalem are up on the walls that kind of fortify the city, and they're looking at the, the armies coming in, coming to invade, coming to attack them. They're like, ah, what do we do? The armies are coming. So they're like, quick, let's tear down some houses over here and take the stones so we plug up all the gaps in the wall and let's save ourselves. 
And once they realize that actually, no, that's not going to save us. The armies are too great. They're still going to invade. They're still going to conquer us. What do we do now? Well, let's just get all the wine. Let's get all the meat and have a big party because tomorrow we're going to die. So we might as well. And God says, man, all you needed to do is trust me and ask me for help. And I would, I would save you. But you were too stubborn, too prideful to do that. You, you think you can throw a party for yourself because tomorrow you die? Man, look at the party that I am going to throw for the people who wait for me. It's not going to compare to this party that you throw for yourself. Everything sad, he says, is coming untrue. It's a quote from the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was a Christian. He read Isaiah 25. He read Revelation 21. This is our future. We have hoped in him against hope. Despite what our eyes can see, we have waited on him, and he has done it. And since we waited, now it's time to celebrate. We have a big party with Jesus and all his people, the poor and the powerless from every city, every nation on the earth. He's rescued us and adopted us and made us into one family, seated us around one table. Every single one of you has a place at that table with your name written on a card. It is there. Jesus has said, I have done this for you. Two cities. One of them looks beautiful now, but it is not going to last because it's filled with people who don't want God to rule them. It's going to come under the curse of God's judgment. It looks strong and powerful and comfortable and livable now, but eventually it will fall. The city of God, on the other hand, is pretty much invisible now. All these promises of new life and flourishing and feasting are for the future. And we have to start this journey toward this city in faith. And that's hard to do when you're living in the most livable city on earth. It's one of the reasons that God sometimes allows hardship and suffering to come into our lives. It helps us to see that this world is not our hope and it's not our home. And that this world will have to be done away with first because it's so full of sin and violence and pollution. It has to be done away with first. Remember, in God's city, though, only the righteous can get in. Only those who are good enough get an invitation to the table. So, what about you? Are you good enough? Am I good enough to get there? Well, the answer, if we understand Scripture and we understand who God is and who we are, the answer is no, we're not good enough. So, how does that work? How do we end up at this, in this city? How would we end up at the table? Isaiah chapter 27, verse 8 says, God contended with his people because of their sin. He, he contended. He went head to head with them. He drove them away in anger. He punished them. And it says in verse 9, Therefore, their sins are removed, forgiven, forgotten. You say, hang on. If God was to contend with you or with me, would I win that fight? No. There's no way I can contend with God and live. I would not only lose, but I'd be destroyed unless someone contended in my place. Unless the punishment that was coming to me fell 
on someone else. Now, Isaiah doesn't unveil that part of it for us here. He will later on. And of course, in the New Testament, we know the one who contended in our place. We know the one who took the punishment. We know the one who was cut off that we might be included. I want to finish with this final challenge. I asked you the two questions before. I said, which city do you want to live in? And then question number two, how do we live now when we're physically in this city, but we want to live for this city? How do we, how do, we do that? I want to give you three words, three words that I hope get to the heart of it. First word is repentance. You'll notice here that repentance is something that's available for everyone. There's people in this city from every nation, and the thing that makes them all the same, the thing that unites them, is that they, it says they have learned righteousness. They have trusted God to make them righteous. Repentance comes before revival. If you ever hear anybody talking to you about revival and they're not talking about repentance, they've missed it. Repentance, turning from sin and turning to God comes first. Listen to chapter 26, verse 9. The people say this, I long for you, God, in the night. Yes, my spirit within me diligently seeks you. When your judgments are in the land, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. See, that's, that's a characteristic of the people in this city is that they have experienced the judgments and they have repented. They have turned to God in faith. Repentance comes before revival. So that's the first way that we can live for this city while being in this city. Second word for you is refuge. We learn over time to look not to the world and the things of the world for refuge, but to God. Um, Isaiah chapter 25, verse 1 and 2, or sorry, 1 and 4 says this, Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have accomplished wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you've been a stronghold for the poor person, a stronghold for the needy in his distress, a refuge from storms, and a shade from the heat. See, we know that death is not the end when we are hiding in the refuge of God. We know that fasting will give way to feasting, and we live differently than those who are captive to fear. So many people in this city over here are motivated by fear. They don't want to die. They want to live as long and as comfortably as they possibly can and make the most out of the few, this window of time before they get too old or too incapable of doing stuff. And people live out of fear. And yet we know that even though we die in this city, we will live. God is our refuge. Third word for you is represent. Represent. Why don't you think about this? How do we represent the city of God while living in this city over here. Think of it like an embassy, okay? In a couple of weeks' time, my kids and I, we're going to go over to Melbourne, and we're going to visit the U.S. consulate because they need to renew their passports, and they're, they're U.S. citizens. And 
To do that, you have to show up in person. As soon as you walk in that building, you are now no longer under the full jurisdiction of Australian law. You are under the jurisdiction of U.S. law. You see there's the U.S. flag. You see a picture of the U.S. president and that, um, in, that, in, the, in that space. Now imagine for a second the people who work there in that consulate slash embassy. If they were in there and said, okay, we love America. And our mission is to bring America to Australia. You think, is it? Is our mission to build America here? It's not. Because you start talking like that, it sounds more like an invasion. And that's what it would be. Same thing is true for us in the church. I kind of cringe when people, when Christians, well-meaning, start talking and singing about building God's kingdom on earth. Bringing heaven to earth. Changing the atmosphere, all this kind of stuff. We sing it, right? And what we mean is we want justice and righteousness and mercy and, you know, the gospel to go out. I, I get what we mean. But understand this. God does not call us to be architects of the kingdom. He calls us to be ambassadors of the kingdom. There's a difference. We're here to represent him. And guess what? You can represent him faithfully in dying just as much as you can by being elected to parliament. You can represent him faithfully in suffering just as faithfully as you can represent him in success. Do you see the difference? We're called to represent the kingdom, to say that my hope, my treasure is here. So man, if I lose my possessions for him, if I lose my health for him, if I don't get a big retirement account because of him, if I give my life and go and tell people in a faraway place about Jesus for him, it's because my, that's where my treasure is, and that's how I represent him. And I wonder, how are you doing in that? People look at you, or you look around, and you think, man, are you representing this city? Or do you look just like all the other people in this city that are eating and drinking for tomorrow we die? Who do you represent? Because the feast is coming. And that's not to say we have to you know, be too, we're too good for, you know, the good stuff here. But we don't live for those things. We don't hope in those things. We represent the king. We've got to live like it. You know, he might lead you to suffer so that you would be free of sin, so that you would be that fruitful vine. He might call you to obscurity so that the spotlight is 100% on Jesus. He might not give you an easy life so that you would learn to say he is enough. This world is not worthy of someone like that. But Jesus is. Jesus is worthy of anything you could possibly lose in this city that you might gain Christ and be found in Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's your word that teaches us truth. 
and helps us to live truthfully for the city that is coming. Teach us to represent you well as we live in this city that is fading away, that is facing condemnation. Help us to be your people who rescue those who are dying. You have given us incredible mercy through Jesus. Help us to be vessels of mercy. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.